Good morning again, and thank you everyone for being here. Welcome to Conversations with Shonda. If this is your first event, you are in for a treat. And if you've missed previous events, be sure to uh, look up Conversations with Shonda online. She's got some awesome conversations with folks like Van Jones and Yusuf Salam of the Exonerated Five that I'm sure you wouldn't want to miss. My name is Ernest Comer III. I am the Associate Director for the African American Leadership Forum. And I have the honor and privilege of introducing both Shonda and Josie today. So I'm excited for that. Um, and the reason I believe I got this opportunity is because I lead a program called the Josie R. Johnson Leadership Academy. Yeah, no mistake, <laughs> no mistake. So, <laughs> so the, the thing about our program is that we take 10 of our emerging leaders in community and give them an opportunity to come together as a cohort and we invest in them six months of free coaching. We invest in them an opportunity to engage with 10 torchbearers or mentors in community. We offer them an opportunity to travel with us to Washington DC for the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation's annual legislative conference. And once they graduate, they get a $1,000 stipend to continue their leadership development. And so when I had the opportunity to come on board with the leadership forum at the beginning of the year, I was really excited to dive in and make changes to the program so that it could earn the name of Josie Robinson Johnson. So thank you for that opportunity. And Josie was gracious enough to allow us to use her, her name and her likeness and our logo. So I really appreciate that. Shonda is somebody who hopefully most folks in the room are familiar with. But for me personally, she's someone who has had a massive impact on the trajectory of my career. Um, I don't even know if Shonda realizes this, but when I graduated from the University of Minnesota in 2009, I graduated directly into a recession that put me in a position to live out of my car for a few months. And I was, I was really, um, I'll say blessed with the opportunity to have worked with Shonda before then. And so I leveraged that relationship. I continued to follow up with Shonda and follow up with Shonda. And I, would, I didn't know if she wanted me to cut the grass or, or mow the <laughs> I didn't know if she wanted me to paint the building, but I knew that I could be a resource. And over a little bit of time, Shonda finally gave me a call and asked me to come in with Public Allies and AmeriCorps program with Pillsbury United Communities. And that's where my career kicked off. So thank you for that. And Shonda has an amazing capacity for transformational leadership, an amazing capacity for a significant impact. And so I'm sure that the Minneapolis Foundation is really, really benefiting from all that she brings to the table in her 20 plus years of service to community. Um, Josie, oh my goodness. Josie Johnson is a larger than life character. I met Josie in 2016 when I was a fellow in the program. And I quickly learned that she gives the warmest hugs anybody has ever felt. <laughs> and it's strange because she's small, but it feels like a goose down furry coat. And when you realize the weight of all that she's experienced in her life, and you realize the 
lifelong commitment that she's demonstrated through the work that she's done in communities here in Colorado, in Texas, in Tennessee. I just, I find myself in awe of all that she's been able to contribute to the community that we're in, but the world that we're in as a whole. So thank you so much for all that you've done. So without further ado, I won't take up too much time. Please help me welcome Shonda Smith Baker and Josie Robinson Johnson. And Josie is celebrating a birthday next week on October 7th. So on three, if you could help me wish her a happy birthday. One, two, three, happy birthday. Thank you very much. So I'm going to say a few of my own words. Hello? Okay. And um, I don't ever remember. I, I want... I'm going to stand. Yep, you said I'll stand. Um, I don't ever remember not knowing Dr. Josie. Have I ever not known you? <laughs> um, Dr. Josie knew my, my mother. She knows my mother. She knows my uncle. She knows my grandmothers. And so literally, I don't think I've ever not known her. But I've gotten to come into relationship with her work and with her and I'll tell you, if there's ever an example of a person that um, I aspire to be, it's Dr. Josie. There is, um, she has the politest way of telling you no. <laughs> I remember like, I don't know, 20 years ago, I had this really great idea about education and I'm like, Dr. Josie, like, and then we can do this and we can do that and then it could look like this. And I'm like, what do you think? And she says, Oh, darling. <laughs> oh, darling. We tried that once before in 1950. <laughs> and I'm like sitting there, and then I get captivated by the story, and I walk away, and I'm like, she told me no. <laughs> and so I just, I'm so delighted um, to be in this conversation. And, um, you know, I'm in a, in a stage of my life, and I want to shout out to ARP. Um, for their partnership in this, and that um, when I turned 40, I got the card like that week, and I was um, offended. <laughs> Today, I'm delighted. Then I was offended um, to have gotten that, that card. But I'm also in a moment, and Dr. Josie knows, where um, my sister and I put my mother in memory care on uh, Friday. And um, I will say, and people have asked me how I am, and what I've said is, I'm vertical. <laughs> that, that's where I'm at. And um, to think about what it means to live a full life and, and have full mind and to still be present enough to think beyond yourself, to continue to be able to give. And um, I don't even know if retirement was in your vocabulary, so I'm going to ask you that because it feels to me like you've um, continued at the same pace. And what does it look like to give beyond yourself for your entire life? 
and to bring such joy on issues that are so big. And so that's why I want to explore today. So I appreciate each and every one of you being here. If I don't get a chance to say a hello to you personally, no, I want to uh, reach out at any time. If you have questions, if you have ideas on guests, either for live conversations or for the recordings, please let me know. So welcome and um, be part of this conversation. You're welcome. So Dr. Josie, when, um, how do you, what would be your elevator speech for yourself? Like, how do you introduce yourself? <laughs> like, as a mother, as an activist, as an educator, like, what, what words do you use to describe yourself? Do you know I've never been asked that question? And so I'm not sure how to answer that question. I consider myself an old lady who has been blessed with so many opportunities. I feel that I grew up in an environment where retirement was not a word in your uh, vocabulary. I grew up with parents who were very active, a community that expressed deep love, support, and confidence in us as young people. So I don't know what retirement is. I guess I should at 89 next week consider retirement, but I'm not sure what, <laughs> what it looks like. <laughs> and I thank you for acknowledging that. I am happy to have lived this long and to have had the opportunities that have been presented. So. I don't quite know how I would introduce myself. Mm -hmm. I know that I would love engaging in conversation with my young people, as I think you represent, Shonda, what all of us, your elders, wished for, your parents, your community, your environment, raised you well. So I'm not sure. How do you introduce yourself? Um, and I appreciate the fact that there is a need to do that and to stay connected with the struggles of our community, to be aware of it, to be engaged with our young people. So if you can define that for me, <laughs> I'll use it the next time I'm asked. <laughs> Duly noted. See what I mean? See how, that <laughs> how it politely comes back to you? Um, so you grew up in the segregated South? Yes, in Houston, Texas. Um, I think, you know, for many of us in this room, we know what that looks like from television. Were there 
any benefits of being in a segregated community? You know, segregation in my community during the time that I was growing up, I don't think you think of it in those terms. Born in 1930 in San Antonio, Texas, and then my parents moving to Houston two years later, in those years, there was a sense among black people that gave my brothers and me a feeling of support, protection, and a great deal of engagement in what we were doing. My parents graduated from Purview College, black historic school just outside of Houston in 1926 and 29. And we grew up in that environment of my dad wanted to be a lawyer. There were no graduate programs in the South and particularly in Texas. And so he could not enter law school. But what he did was what many black men did in that generation was he joined the railroad, Southern Pacific Railroad. And he became a waiter. My father helped organize the black waiters on the railroad, Southern Pacific. And my brothers and I used to go with him on weekends to his office little building, little space in Houston in the fourth ward, which was a black area. And we'd listen to him as he talked on the phone organizing. So I think we learned early on that process. My mother graduated in uh, the field of education. And so she was very engaged with children and young children's programs. So we grew up in an environment, I believe, of service. And that was what you did. You didn't think that wasn't something you thought about and calculated about. That's what they did. We saw it, and I think it laid the foundation for the kind of work all of us did. My youngest brother um, was a, a lawyer, graduated from law school, and became the first African-American 
male in nonprofit housing. So he was quite busy, active, and engaged. But my friends, that was expected, natural. We didn't pay a lot of attention to that kind of thing. My older brother, Judson, um, graduated from Fisk. They both did undergraduate and then graduate study. And he uh, became engaged in real estate as my father had been. Daddy opened a real estate firm with insurance. And Judson became the first black city councilman in Houston and served as associate mayor at times in Houston. But they were all busy. It was normal. It was natural. It was I don't remember us focusing greatly on that or paying a great deal of attention or feeling that we were somehow different. It was a part of the community, a part of what our family did. My, my grandmother ran a drugstore. Her husband was a pharmacist. They had a drugstore in San Antonio, my brother's, and I used to go uh, holidays, work there in the summer. My grandmother uh, told us that the money we received was to buy school clothes and to do um, that kind of work in her store. So. I think it was all of that, plus the friendships that we developed among our community people. So I went to a Catholic school from kindergarten to 12th grade. So I didn't know that, I knew we didn't have equipment in our school the way other schools had. But it made us, I think, appreciate the environment we were in of love, support, protection, belief, and that gets edged in the fabric. So I don't think you have, um, at that time, watching your parents work at desegregating, watching the community represent who we are as a people. There were all kinds of people in my community. And I am forever grateful for the experience, exposure, that they presented to us. We had all kinds of people in the neighborhood. And the brothers who stood on the corner without the kind of confidence 
would say to us, I want you to go to school and I want you to do things that I could not do. So that was an inspiration. It wasn't, it wasn't a sense of better than, different than. It was a part of who you are and who your community is. So you became very active in the civil rights movement. And so at some point, you confronted um, the laws that were separating. Um, and you confronted um, perhaps a level of danger that you still walked towards. Do you remember the, the moment where you decided to become more active, or was it as fluid as how you describe it? Was it just something that um, was part of your DNA and you, you just became an activist and you moved, or was there a moment? I don't believe there was a moment. I believe that the exposure from your childhood of the people who are in the community, they're working towards equality and justice. You know that. Um, you follow their footsteps. You know, the belief that we all build on our ancestral shoulders was um, just a an experience, a sense of being, a sense of what you do. So it wasn't as if we every night came home and sort of reported what we'd done. It was nothing like that. It is a normal, natural set of behaviors. You do it. Your parents did it. Your grandparents. My grandfather was born in 1877. Um, he was so, um, in my judgment, exceptional. He was, he became a minister. He went as far as he could go uh, in school. <laughs> and he was, he was the kind of human being that offered uh, continuity in the struggle. And my grandmother was a little woman who protected my grandfather. She didn't allow people to, uh, when my grandfather, these are stories we were told, when he preached in churches, if anyone stood up and questioned him, she would question them. <laughs> <laughs> So we kind of grew up in an environment in which um, you were proud of what you did and with whom you associated. So I'm not sure 
I know exactly how to respond to that question. Yeah, I think I have. Um, I've always wondered whether or not, I mean, clearly I was born in the generation I'm supposed to be, but that I've always thought, like, how would I be if I was born in that generation? And I have this impression of, like, waking up and seeing things and being angry and going out and, and fighting and, and this level of, of danger. But when I um, have the opportunity to talk to um, people that live through it, it doesn't really present the same way that I've envisioned it. And um, you hear often now, people will say, well, we're fighting the same fights as we were years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, there's days I wake up pretty angry <laughs> about stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But also really blessed, and, and I'm thinking back and forth between what you're sharing and how I grew up, and I see um, some similarities. But do you feel like we're still fighting the same fights? Oh, absolutely. Um, remember, we have to um, think of what our ancestors went through. And I say, we're still here as a people, number one. But the values that they taught, I... I think of the struggle of then and now. There's still education, which meant so much to our people. Education was as important to us as emancipation. In fact, our men built schools as soon as there was an indicator of, of, um, of freedom. Started building schools, Klan came along, tore them down, burned them down. They'd start all over again. Education was critical. Um, there are stories about their not celebrating the way we would celebrate an event today. They didn't go and gather and have refreshments and, and laugh. And they got up, built more schools, hired teachers from all over the country to come stay at our homes and help. Education was so critical, and it still is, critical piece of our people. The whole idea of protecting our children, loving them, modeling um, behavior was so critical uh, among our people, and still is. We don't see it as much, perhaps, but our families still love their children, believe in them, and offer every opportunity that's possible. So anger, yes. Um, I remember, of course, my very early days of working and 
being a lobbyist for one thing or another, and being engaged in these conversations with the community. Different periods of our lives as a people has required different responses. So in those early days with my father and my mother and my grandmother and others, um, we believed that we could make things happen by the way we fought for the struggles and how we shared the information that was required to understand what needed to be done. And I think that what we have realized through the generations is that that sense of inferiority of us among the majority group in our society, we have to understand how deep that is. It's so deeply etched in the fabric that I think many people don't even recognize their own ignorance about the struggle or their behavior or understanding the, the difference between how things are seen and how they are treated. So through the generations, watching my family, knowing our communities work and behavior, it requires different strategies at different times, depending on what kind of community we're in now. Yes, we're full of, of prejudice, discrimination, denial. We know that we are better than that. And what we also know is that we then respond to the condition of the time and what's required. So as you were growing up, you could sense the frustration of your mom and your family and your community and you could either be free to respond to that because you were supported by your community and family and we knew the phases that you go through. So each generation has had to handle the oppression in the way for that system at that society and that time. And I believe that things are, there is bad now as they were then, 
and that you we said are you believe that it is as bad now I do I believe even though you know when you stop to think that I was engaged in fair housing legislation Minnesota was the first state to pass a fair housing bill in the 61 legislative session and housing was supposed to be open, freely bought, and look at where we are right now. So you wonder about housing. We talked about the love and demand of education. Where are we in Minnesota? in 2019, we talk about law enforcement and the understanding of human condition and reaction. So we just have to, my friends, ask ourselves, where are we? And what are our next steps. What are we teaching your grands and great grands right now about justice and equality? How are they observing it? And when I see that so many of our children are not believers in justice and what can happen, I worry because they need to have examples of what hard work produces. I was so excited, and I may be going too far, but I was so excited when President Obama was a candidate and elected, I thought, our young black men will see what hard work, discipline, behavior, knowledge, fatherhood, husbandhood would mean that that would be this forward movement of our people. What happened? We have to think about that. What did our young men learn from that? That all of that doesn't matter. Not if you are black and not if you're in America. That was so hurtful to me because I was so, we have so many young black males who are so able and have so much to give. And I thought Obama would be the model for that. But we know, don't we, what happened to him so let's don't forget that, that the system is so deeply 
etched with the behavior of racism, sexism, cruelty, that it is hard to undo what we've been so carefully taught. So I think, as I say, that may have gone beyond <laughs> what... <laughs> She knows me, though, yeah. so And, and that's she gets to go where she wants to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you talked about people that um, are in denial. And I thought about the conversation that we had in this room with Dr. Robin DiAngelo that talked about um, us living in racist waters, um, to all of the other scholars before that talk about how seeped racism and sexism and the isms are in our systems and in our world. And yet, um, I come in contact with people regularly, as I imagine you are, that are just kind of coming into that, just mm -hmm. coming into their own understanding. Um, and there are some people that perhaps see it and just refuse to believe it. Do you have advice for people that are either in denial or um, people who may work with people that are in denial? <laughs> <laughs> I believe that um, there are people who are in denial, and I believe that those who are find it very difficult um, to understand what's being said or done. But I think it's up to individuals who think they understand um, the struggle and who think they can offer uh, rational conversation uh, to be encouraging people to talk. We don't talk in our society and I I think the more we are exposed to all these things, um, what do you call it? all the technology, um, everything is abbreviated and it is placed in context that um, is so I think difficult for many to really have a good conversation. So I believe, and this is where I am at this moment, I believe it is time for us all to take the time to talk to each other, to be understanding of the hesitation. You know, I think about here we are in Minnesota that has always been painted as one of our most liberal states, and yet I remember how difficult it was to get fair housing approved in Minnesota. Um, churches and social groups had been working on this 
for years before the state legislature uh, voted positively on it. One by one vote, my friends. The legislature approved a fair housing, one vote. So it isn't as if we were overwhelmingly a liberal state. That was and clear in the results of their last election. Exactly. <laughs> it, it wasn't overwhelming. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I think, yes, it's still very deep. And um, you've got to work on your little children and help us all understand how deeply etched that training is to justify slavery. The, the slave owners had to justify their treatment of our people. And after emancipation, they had to create the laws, <coughs> excuse me, that supported their belief and behavior. Those are the laws that many of us still observe. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. I will slow down. <laughs> slow down so I can catch up. <laughs> um, I was, I'm looking here at, at some of my notes, and you participated in something called Wednesdays in Mississippi. Yes. Can you tell us what that was? Well, you know, um, Dorothy Height, who is a well-known black woman, who was the first black woman to be hired by the YWCA in New York, she was very committed active scholar, smart woman who was engaged in civil rights issues. And like many women, um, she was not as acknowledged in public as our black brothers. And she was always there, planning, working. Um, she was a Delta, which is my sorority, and she encouraged us all to be very active. I had an opportunity to serve on a couple of boards with Dorothy, the National Council of Negro Women and Delta Sigma Theta. And during my uh, years uh, serving with her, you, I learned so much. Dorothy finally decided in the middle of the civil rights struggle in the early 60s that women could do more than we were doing. So she organized something called Wednesdays in Mississippi. She invited black women and white women to go to Mississippi and to be engaged in the work of registering us to vote. And I was blessed to be one of those. Mary Kyle, whom you may remember, 
editor of the St. Paul Pioneer Press, a woman by the name of Maxine Nathanson, a Jewish woman very active here in Minnesota, and a woman by the name of Barbara Cunningham, who was also active in the issues of civil rights and justice in our community. Two black women, two non-black women. We went to Mississippi. Her purpose, Dorothy's purpose, was for us to get to know the women, white women and black women of Mississippi and what they were engaged in and for us to share their stories and to be engaged in civil rights issues. My experience there, Mary Kyle and I were the team uh, that, that worked together in Jackson. And when we arrived uh, that evening, we were taken directly by a black family to a historic black Baptist church in Jackson, Mississippi. And we were able to observe black men patrolling the church building because as you know, there had been bombings and killings and destruction of property. They were marching around the church, protecting those inside. We were ushered in. From that night forward, we had an opportunity to get to see what was going on. We visited freedom schools. They were developed, if you'll remember, in 1954, with the Supreme Court decision, all public schools in the South, particularly in Jackson, Mississippi, were closed. Our children either had to go to church basements or homes or other social settings to be educated by teachers and others in the community. So we were visiting one of those schools. They called them freedom schools. You'll remember all of that. And we visited that. It was, a, a, you know, an effort. A lot of your grandchildren might have sent books to Jackson or might have gone to Jackson. And what we did was to visit those schools. The night after we left one of them, the school building was bombed, destroyed. We met with ministers and other religious people during that time who were too afraid to talk about civil rights in Jackson, Mississippi. 
And so they met with us to share their fears. White women in that area would close, pull down their, sh their uh, window shades if there were other than white women in their presence. And we learned about the difficulty and what it meant to have been raised in an environment like that. Wednesdays in Mississippi, she recruited black and white women to go to different southern cities and observe what was going on. And that was our experience coming back. We were told not to mention the trip at all. It was to have been a secret visit. The Attorney General Kennedy knew about it, but he was the only one. And I can remember talking to my husband about that trip. And you can imagine he was very much against my going and tried to convince me not to go. And we worried. My oldest daughter was eight, six, and four. And the question was, one of the questions, was what would happen if I was killed in Mississippi or jailed? What would he do <laughs> without three daughters? And so finally, I was able to encourage him to think positively <laughs> about the trip. So leaving them uh, was difficult and worrisome. But we all address our struggles in different ways. And that was one of the ways that I had. I was blessed to go, blessed to come back, blessed to, at some period, not immediately, we were not allowed or encouraged to talk about that experience right away. So we had to wait a little while to start sharing it with our communities. But it was an experience, my friends, to know that in 1960s, black people were still being abused and treated very badly in our various communities. So that was an experience that I will always remember. You Sandra. went to the, the March on Washington. Mm -hmm. And I know you've you've done um, you've contributed so much to uh, the movement and to the the struggle. Um, did you have to be trained? Was there any special instructions about how what you were supposed to do beyond not talking about it? Were there um, things that you had to endure just to be present in that space that you can share? You know. As I think about that period, what I am, what I'm very conscious of is having been in an environment 
parents and others who were engaged in the struggle. And there was never a sense on my part that I should not be. So I think you grow up with that understanding. So you're not sitting down thinking about it. We were encouraged by the Attorney General and others uh, during those travels and engagement um, to be very careful about the, the times we were engaged in those things. But for some reason, I think I was never fearful, but I was conscious. And I um, uh, was very in, um, interested in hearing from our uh, people who had been through that, the kinds of things to be conscious of. But I don't ever remember being discouraged. Some of our elders, of course, were very troubled about the experiences they anticipated we would have and just, I think, constantly reminded us of our ancestral struggle and the cultural um, engagement to know that our ancestors had gone through so much that I think it gave us all encouragement. So I don't remember being yeah. taught what and what not to do. Yeah, and I guess, you know, that's coming from all my TV watching, <laughs> where, where, you know, you see, um, like, in a church where they're, you know, if you're, if you're um, taking a bus across country and um, you're stopped, or if someone confronts you when they're violent, you know, and just the discipline around staying nonviolent or staying consistent on message. And so I've um, grown up to believe that that was very much part of the experience. Well, it was for many. Um, you know, we, I think we've all uh, known of that kind of um, effect that um, many of our people experienced. But remember now, we are facing the kind of oppression and discrimination that has always existed um, among our people. And we've had such support from our elders who encourage you uh, to be careful, but also to stay uh, engaged in the struggle and to remember the ancestors' efforts from the treatment our folk felt 
on the plantation to all the steps that they had to go through to survive and to keep us alive. Um, so I think you never felt that what you were doing was as severe as what your ancestors experienced or what the previous generation had experienced. So I think that's the kind of awareness you have. And no, you don't sit and be trained. You do what you've been doing forever. Let's talk about your girls. <laughs> so you talked about um, the community that raised you, and then you, you took the baton, or you, you walked alongside um, the ancestors and, and those that were in the work, and now you're raising daughters? They are raised. <laughs> <laughs> you raised your daughters. Um, and, you know, there's so much I can think about in terms of your experience. And, and maybe even before I go there, you talked a little bit about the women in the struggle, the women of civil rights movements that um, often are not talked about in the same way. So there were, I would imagine, multiple struggles. And then just thinking about your grandparents going to college and graduating and your parents, your parents graduating from college and um, especially the women I've thought a lot about. Um, so what do you think it meant to your daughters to see how you moved through the world? Do you feel like it was the same as you watching your mother or do you feel like it was different in any way? Well, I... I guess they too had no choice. They grew up in, a, in an environment of adults in their families who were busy and involved. My, I lost my eldest daughter in 1989, uh, Patrice. Patrice was um, activist all her life <laughs> from elementary school. Um, she became a lawyer. She worked on issues dealing with the struggle. She was um, chief of staff for one of our congresspeople from Texas. Uh, Mickey Leland, who is now, he deceased as, he's deceased as well. They died together in an airplane crash in Ethiopia as they were going there to check on the condition of our Ethiopian community. My next daughter, Noreen, who is a resident of Atlanta and is an electrical engineer, she really took after her father, who was an engineer and a mathematician. The rest of us were not, but she was. And then my youngest daughter, Josie, is a lawyer, uh, is executive senior, vice president of CBS. So she has been 
engaged, and they all, praise God, have done things in respect of their ancestral struggle, but also doing work, continuous work for our family and for black people. I have three granddaughters, all of whom are engaged in work dealing with our struggle. My youngest granddaughter just opened a bookstore in Atlanta called Four Keeps. So if you ever go to Atlanta, <laughs> go to her. She collects books that are written for and by black people who may not be, the books are not available freely anymore. And her uh, sister, Josie, there are five of us. <laughs> <laughs> that Josie is a lawyer and a writer and is very engaged in community and in work. And now I have three great-grands, two girls, and the first boy in our family. <laughs> and my son-in-law swears he's gonna build a fence around him to keep, to keep us away. So I am, I, I consider myself blessed because the children are reflecting what their ancestral training has been just as the rest of us. So I feel blessed. Thank you for asking about them. You're quite welcome. The um, March on Washington. So there's two questions I think I have in this and one is around white allyship. So um, it, it seems to me that there were always white people that partnered with black people to make progress and worked in the struggle. That's not always how we hear it, but is that, is that real? Is that the reality of it? My experience has been in, in the years that we have fought for legislation for years where we have depended on many of the people here in this room to keep asking, talking, pulling together discussion groups, introducing issues of justice and equality in the agendas that are developed. There's, we've always had uh, non-black people engaged in that work. I believe that it is critical that we continue to talk about it, to gather, to be honest with each other and fearless of questions that need to be raised and discussed because I think many of us don't realize how deeply etched the training of the slave masters and all the laws that were 
developed after emancipation have sunk into our thinking. We don't even, and I'm using the word we loosely, what I'm trying to say to you is we're not, as a people in society, really talking to each other and asking questions and really talking deeply about some of the things we have heard or we respond to without realizing it. And it's, I'm trying to say, at this age and this place we're in, my friends, this has been one of the most painful periods for me when I realize how many of you and us have worked to try to create justice and equality in a society that could accept a person like our current leader and accepted without a lot of, it's true, you know, I've heard some of my friends say it was not numerically, it doesn't matter. The number of final count does not matter because we have succumbed to that kind of conversation and behavior and not do the challenging that we should. And it scares me when I think of the number of black people who have fought and died for justice and to come through a period that someone could raise all of that again and create the kind of, of questioning behavior uh, that we see now and not have a flood of Minnesotans fighting <laughs> and questioning out loud about the kind of things we are experiencing in our day, it scares me. I have wept at the election. I can remember talking to my grandchildren. My eldest wept. We talked for a very long time as she shared concern about her two little girls. What kind of world would they grow up in? I worry that 
the period we're in right now is reflective of that old training. And I think sometimes we are without full recognition, reflecting a behavior that denies, <coughs> excuse me, the, uh, the justice that our ancestors fought for. <coughs> excuse me. Um, I want to open it up and see if there's any um, questions that anyone might have or any comments in our last 15 minutes. I know um, I've got one right here. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. I'm wondering if you could share your hopeful uh, thoughts with regard to Minnesota in particular in light of um, all you've experienced because right now I think we're all looking for a little hope. <laughs> Thank you for that, because I think hope is what keeps us going. There is a belief that if, part of my hope is that if our ancestors could go through what they went through, and the continuation of that in so many different forms, that if they could do it and still be here, and as I say, we are still here as a people, we're still trying to give our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren hope that, um, Someday, someday, um, justice will be felt and seen. I think as long as we can hold on to that and our children begin to see success as Ernest and others are showing, then there will always be hope. What I'm concerned about is our children today need to see hope. They need to see black people who are successful. They need to see black people who work hard, who have a great deal of faith in themselves who are rewarded for their hard work. Our young people need to know that their focus, concentration on, on the quality of what they do is seen respected by the society and that our children, what worries me is that our children need to see those of you who are in this room 
this morning see you out there fighting also for their justice and their work and their success and to be acknowledged. Our children don't always get acknowledged for what they do and the work they perform, the contributions they make in their classroom and in the street. So my hope is that we are entering the period where our children will once again have the hope of their ancestors and that they will be acknowledged. You have to be acknowledged and appreciated and I think they need to know that. Mm -hmm. It's not just one here and one there and we can take it or leave it. We have thousands yeah. of young black people who want to do well. And it's up to you, community, to make sure they have that opportunity That's to right. do well. So I actually have the next question, <laughs> um, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you and I almost forgot. So um, you had an incident with Uber. Yes. Oh, yes. Can you share? Well, it, it's about Uber, but it's not about Uber. It's bigger than Uber. It's bigger than Uber, but if you don't mind listening to this story, because I think um, Monique and others who have gotten engaged in this struggle. One day in June, uh, I was going to uh, some graduation exercises of very special people. And I generally, I've been so blessed with my young friends driving me where I needed to go. This day, everybody was busy. And my godchild, Kamali Williams, Mahmoud's daughter, said she would call Uber. It was the service she had used. And so she did. The driver came to my building, I live in a condominium, and um, stopped in front of the building. I assumed it was the driver, but I wasn't sure. So I went to the car and I said, are you looking for Josie Johnson? He never answered. He kept looking straight ahead. He never looked in my direction. So. I said, I assumed then that I had permission. So I got in his car, and as he pulled away from my building, I said, this is my first time, so I may not be doing the right thing. Do you have the address? He still didn't answer. Never looked in my direction, nor answered. So as we continued, and I was very confused. And finally I said, young man, is there a problem? 
He never responded. He drove a little further, and before exiting the drive area, uh, he stopped, and he said, you can get out of my car. So, what a shock. <laughs> so I said, oh, really? And he said, yes. So I said, okay. I opened the door and stepped out, and my shoe got caught in the drain. So I fell. He didn't respond in any way. Finally, I was able to get my heel out of the drain, and I got a little bit up, right, Monique? And he then, uh, I couldn't get up completely, so I was on the ground, and he drove off. He went, made a left turn, and left. And my friends said, had he turned right, he would have run over me. So I was so surprised, got my shoe back on, kind of straightened my clothes, and I was embarrassed. I don't know if you've ever been embarrassed. I was embarrassed. There I am, and I was looking around to see if anyone had seen me. So I got up, went back to my building and called Kamali and I said that didn't work out <laughs> but I didn't want to tell her what had happened because I didn't want her to worry I said I'll tell you about it tonight so after uh, uh, so she called another service I think it was Lyft she called, they came and took me where I needed to go. Well, by that evening, my ankle had swollen quite a bit. So I finally took a picture, sent it to Kamali, and explained to her what had happened. And in a day or so, I finally went to the hospital and had them check the ankle. But that was a very... So my community, my wonderful community, Tyrone Terrell called a meeting of our community. They came at the Urban League and I was able to share that story with them, but I did not want the community to respond to Josie. I was eager for them to know what can happen to an elderly black person, and particularly an elderly black woman. And so I asked them, please, not to do anything for me, but to respond to my condition and experience for the rest of our community and that they have done. So, thank you. I, it was a little while ago, but my first experience of telling me to get out of the car 
or to treat me in that way. So it was a, it was a learning experience. <laughs> Another and learning in the journey. And I thank my community for responding. Yeah, and through this, um, Dr. Josie and Mahmoud Al-Khati have agreed to be spokespeople for issues related to elderly abuse um, in our communities. And Monique, that's sitting over there that's been mentioned, has been working on this. And that as we age and we become more dependent on ride shares, it's essential that those ride shares respond to our aging community that there are policies in place to um, eliminate elder abuse, that we have um, sensitivities that um, I don't think that we have at this point in time um, to the degree that we should um, for our communities. So Monique has been working on uh, a campaign to elevate these issues. Um, the Minneapolis Foundation, they called Velma Corbell from the Civil Rights Department. Monique came and met with us at the foundation and said, will you support it? I think I said yes, <laughs> immediately said yes. Um, and we've been supporting that campaign along with um, the St. Paul Foundation. So I invite you to look at that and to understand that when you have um, this, this beauty, <laughs> this legend, this, this person that, that um, is so public, to have that experience and to be able to use that platform once again. Thank you. Um, not in a selfish way, but in a selfless way. Um, means so much, and we know that every elder does not have a community of support in the same way that Miss Josie has, and that we collectively, um, if that is an issue that you care about, we hope that you um, support that and get engaged in that particular way. Thank you for that. Monique is here. She grabbed it. I had no idea that it could be an issue. What I was concerned about is that we alert um, systems to help our black elders who have to take transportation in other ways than among good friends and family, and shared that story with her. She took it immediately, organized, contacted appropriate entities, and it is now a part of our protection. Right, Monique? Would you stand up, darling, and just... Thank you. Dana's given me the cue. I, can't, I keep looking at my iPad for the time. But Dr. Josie, I'm so sorry that that, that happened to you. And I'm so... Um, Think of how many of our elders have experienced something like that. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, a worse experience. Mm -hmm. Be mindful, yeah. community. Yeah. These I are people who have a history of struggle for justice and equality. And many of my elders get overlooked, and we can't do that. That is the reason, for me, it was more important not to talk about what Josie had experienced, but what our elders experience every day 
as my children said, mother, you were blessed. You could have been dropped off in the middle of the highway. <laughs> and our community responded. So thank you, community. Thank you, Monique. Mm -hmm. And this issue is uh, so present in, in my world right now. Uh, as I started, I talked about my mother, and she is in uh, memory care. And every day, I want them to send me pictures, and I want to have the video in her room, and I want to make sure that she's cared for, and our, our laws should account for that. In our time, in our 90 minutes, in our conversation, we did not have enough time to talk to Dr. Josie about her experience with Martin Luther King, with Humphrey, with her travels across this country, with Dr. John Lewis, yes. with the Selma Bridge, yes. with all of the things that she has contributed to in her life that has made it possible for me, for the people that look like me, and for the rest of our broader community to be in an experience with each other would not happen if it were not for Dr. Josie and all the Dr. Josies um, and all of the people that um, lived before us. I think that we've been um, challenged to think about how we show up every day and how we have the conversations that we need to have answering and asking the questions that need to be put on the table with the degree of, of grace and sensitivity and acceptance and commitment to making our community more just and more available to accept the brilliance of our young people. I've had the opportunity to have a couple of conversations as I was leading into this. One is around uh, schools and their lack of um, commitment to making sure that curriculum and staff are reflective. And when you listen to this story, this life story of the importance of being in a community that was accepting, that raised you, mm -hmm that believed in you, that allowed for you to, to live into who you are, we know that we're denying our children that at this moment right. in our schools. I had an opportunity to talk with Chuck uh, briefly around his experience on the March on Washington. He said he went in there as a jock. He didn't quite say dumb jock, but a jock <laughs> <laughs> that was marginally behaving um, correctly, perhaps, but went there and had his life changed that he walked in just by happenstance, whatever the circumstances were that led him there, but he walked out with a bigger, broader purpose and that he's moved that into his work here in our local community, so thank you for that. Dr. Josie, you got a birthday coming. You're gonna be 89 years 89. old. 89. We got you some flowers. Oh, I know. You know, I, I I don't want to take away from what you want, how you want to close, but... <laughs> but community, I thank you for coming this morning. I have... My life has been what I consider enriched by my people and the struggle. And to know that we are still here and still have faith and belief. The fact that you're here and we can talk. We've got a lot of experiences that we can talk about. 
and share with each other and help each other. I thank you. I thank you. My young person that I love so much, <laughs> known her all of her life, remember when she was at Pillsbury working there, helping, my watching how she responded. Shonda has always been a listener and a person who could share what she has heard and what she believes. She grew up with people around her. You all know her history, her family, her relatives. They've been engaged in this. We're all benefiting, my friends, from the struggle of our ancestors and the belief and hope that we have that we'll pass on some day a better world for our children. Hang in there. <laughs> Please hang in there. Be verbal. Speak your truth. Share. We need you. We need you more now than perhaps ever in the struggle of a people who've been denied and continue to be denied justice and equality. Thank you for coming out. And I am going to turn it back, believe <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Josie. <laughs>